Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, as you may have heard, we have an important election coming up in about a week. Maybe you voted already. Maybe you're voting today. Maybe you're in line right now, waiting to cast your ballot, listening to this very program. If you are, dear listener, thanks for tuning in. And do I have a show for you. This week, I'm sharing a conversation I had with international elections expert Vasu Mohan, who's a practicing Baha'i, and Rose Berger, senior editor at Sojourners magazine and a member of the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative. We discussed why voting is a moral and spiritual duty, how each of my guests are navigating the spiritual challenges of this divisive partisan time, and who we are remembering as we approach All Souls Day. So let us keep you company as you exercise your civil right, dear listener. It's time to get into some interfaith, election-themed-ish. I wanted to start as we do often with our shows, just to get a sense of who each of you are and if there was a particular experience that confirmed you in, in, or set you on the path to your, your uh, current religious or spiritual worldview. Vasu, could you start? Sure. I grew up in uh, Sri Lanka, a predominantly Buddhist country with um, multiple religious minorities and my family was Hindu. So I grew up in that context. Um, I also went to Catholic school and mm. um, regularly was part of catechism. Um, you know, the, the school taught the Catholic faith and the non-Catholic students sat in the back row and during catechism class, we could do whatever we wanted. Uh, but I listened <laughs> intently and I really enjoyed catechism Shooters class. At the, at the Catholics <laughs> in the front. <laughs> I, I, I loved uh, hearing about, um, you know, the stories from the Bible and, um, you know, just a very beautiful Christian thought. So I grew up with this, you know, three religions playing a major role as mm. I was growing up with Christianity in school, Buddhism, you know, in the society around me and Hinduism and my family and uh, always sort of saw beauty in all of them. Um, maybe this prepared me later on in my life when I ran into the Baha'i faith um, and I, um, you know, embraced the Baha'i faith while I was in college. And um, literally the Baha'i faith is like a wide embrace of all of the religious traditions that came before it. And um it was very much part of my, I feel like my upbringing prepared me to, uh, you know, embark on that spiritual journey. Uh, mm. And one of the key principles in the Baha'i faith is to consort with people of all religions in a spirit of friendship and fellowship. So um, th that really has um, been very instructive and very much something I try to uh, follow. Um, if, if there was one particular, you know, sort of formative incident, I would really say that would be the civil war that I lived through that really saw what um, human beings can do to each other, uh, mm. sort of some of the ugliest side of, uh, you know, the lower nature uh, of our characters. And also at the same time saw people do wonderful things, taking care of each other and, uh, you know, saving each other's lives and supporting each other. So being able to see that, I think that was a very, that was definitely a formative moment for me on uh, a spiritual journey. And how old were you at that time? 11. Mm. And and so where were you in your in your religious journey at that point? How did you think about your religious identity? You know, you're an 11-year-old kid. You don't think a lot about your religious identity, <laughs> do you? What I can say was that my mother was deeply connected to God. Um, mm. And, you know, um, and, and that was something that I think she instilled in both me and my sister. And that's something that has stayed with me you know, through all these different uh, points in my life is to be really connected to a higher power, no matter what name we call her or him, uh, to be connected to that higher power and draw inspiration and guidance from um, from God. So that was very, very much part of my childhood. Um, you know, but these uh, different religions, I think, played, whether or not I officially identified with one of them, they played a right. major role in shaping me. Hmm. Rose, how about for you? Tell us a little bit about 
where and how you grew up and, and the role that religion played in that. Yeah, thank you. I, I was born in, in Portland, Oregon, um, and uh, grew up in Sacramento, California. And my parents were both from Catholic families. My dad's family was an immigrant uh, Irish and German family that had come uh, from Ireland and Germany in the mid and late 1800s and settled in Nebraska. They were farmers in Nebraska uh, before the, the 30s uh, depression. And then when they could no longer make a living farming in Nebraska, they moved west hmm. uh, and found uh, found factory work uh, on the west coast. And then eventually my, my parents moved down to, to Sacramento, um, which is where I grew up. And, and on my mom's side, uh, she was from the deep south, from south Arkansas, and was Catholic, and grew up in a Cajun uh, Creole Catholic family uh, hmm. that had originated in Louisiana, and then eventually uh, landed some in Texas and some in South Arkansas. So both sides of my lineage came uh, from really strong Catholic families, both of whom were Catholic minorities. Um, so the Irish uh, side, when they immigrated to the U.S., of course, they experienced all of the... Um, the racism and uh, bias against Irish immigrants and Irish Catholic immigrants um, that that was common at that time. And uh, on my mom's side of the family, to be Catholic in the South and especially to be uh, Creole Catholic in the South uh, was was also to invoke the <laughs> the ire uh, mm. of the of the white Protestant majority. Um, mm. So, you know, my, my mom remembers uh, when she was very little that the clan burned a cross uh, on the front yard of their house. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's just some interesting and, and really important for me stories uh, out of my ancestors about their Catholicism and, right. and how it uh, both gave them the fortitude and the worldview to come through a lot of the things that they came through. Um, mm. And at the same time, um, you know, had some very uh, strict and sometimes uh, sort of cruel aspects to it in, in terms of some of its rigidity or the way it was at least um, handed down. Was there also for you a, a particular standout incident that shaped your, your current worldview as a religious person? You know, I think I always go back to one of my earliest memories, which is sort of is indicative of my my spirituality that when my when my younger sister was born she was born about five years after after me and uh i remember my parents going to the hospital for her to be born my grandmother was staying home with me and i was supposed to be taking my nap in the afternoon and i looked out the window and uh saw an angel bringing my sister to the hospital huh. um and it was as uh, stark and vivid for me as anything has ever been. And mm. I ran into the kitchen and told my grandmother that my mom was going to have a little girl and I had a little sister and the angel had showed her to me. Um, and my grandmother said, that's very nice. You're dreaming. Go back to sleep. You're trying to, <laughs> you're trying to get out of your nap. <laughs> um, and then about five minutes later, my dad called with the news that, uh, that a baby girl had been born. Wow. Um, and I think that kind of uh, mystical spirituality is mm. really deeply ingrained, not only in me, but but in my family, in my grandmothers. Mm. Um, and I think that's sort of the undergirding for my Catholicism, but also just my way of interacting in the world. I thought you would you would talk about some sort of uh, experience uh, at a protest or, or getting arrested <laughs> something like that. that was, that's a very different, uh, take on it than, than what I was ex expecting to hear. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah.
Vasu, I want to turn to your professional lives and and ask you a little bit about your experience with elections internationally. Can you share and explain a little bit about, about the work that you're involved in? Yeah, I work for a nonprofit organization, uh, an international organization that uh, works with election commissions and uh, NGOs, civil society organizations around the world on how to make elections more inclusive, um, more with greater integrity, um, and um, as participatory as possible. So, um, in that context, you know, I have worked in over twenty-five countries now on looking at how can we learn from each other um, as a community of practice and as nations to make our election processes truly reflect the will of the people. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's the it's a right of every person to have a say in who governs them and how they are governed. I often refer to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and Article 21 as our charter that says Mm. the will of the people shall be the basis of authority of government. So really, how to realize that very lofty goal? um, It's a journey that all countries are part of. Certainly Mm -hmm. we are right now as we are talking about it, you know, a week away from Election Day. Um, and, And also to realize that, you know, countries go through phases and learn um, and and there is no sort of permanent path forward. These are, you know, there are periods of advancement, but they could be followed by, you know, periods of um, sort of backsliding. Mm. And we seems to be happening. The, this seems to be happening globally. And how can um, we, as a community of practice professionals, but also as a global community of citizens, support each other in this process? So this is what um, I, you know, I've been doing professionally now for the past 20 years and mm. um, just have been truly humbling to see, you know, the challenges that people have towards achieving this goal and how amazing the human spirit is, um, you know, where they, where they just make efforts to transcend these barriers. If we're thinking um, about the, the U.S. election in particular and, and the concerns around that, what as an as an expert would you say have you observed as being concerns in terms of um, potentials for fraud or intimidation or disenfranchisement of of certain key communities? Um, because obviously it's not just about folks being motivated to show up, right? It's it's also that there are very real efforts to actually make it more difficult to fulfill our right to vote. Yeah, this th- is say you know a, a complex question in one sense and a very simple question. In another, mm. right? Um, taking a very simplistic approach to this, um, all people must have access to the ballot. They should be able to vote free from intimidation, political pressure, or any sort of barrier that is placed in front of them, right? So this mm-hmm. is the key principle. So how do we enfranchise as many people as possible to vote in an inclusive, in a safe, you know, way, and with them receiving, you know accurate, good information. Mm-hmm. Certainly candidates will, you know, put themselves forward in their best case scenario. They'll want to put their best picture forward and they'll want to appeal to their, you know, um, appeal to their constituencies So, or their supporters. So that's certainly, that's a partisan side. But are there sources of information that people can turn through that are independent, that are neutral, that are credible? Um, and sort of, you know, how... How well has the digital literacy or media literacy of mm. the uh, voters been built up you know, right. over time? And this cannot happen just a couple of months before elections. This is, these are long-term you know, initiatives. So I look at the elections here in the U.S. and then have to ask some sort of very fundamental questions from an international you know, uh, electoral rights perspective. First is the question of gerrymandering. Um, do voters, I know this is, it is legal, um, you know, but is it something that conforms with international electoral standards? Should, mm-hmm. should, should those who elected, those who are elected, do they get to pick their voters as opposed right. to voters? Pick? So that's a, you know, it's a uniquely U.S. situation um, that both political parties, major political parties engage in. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a more of a principal question. Should, um, you know, districting be done by nonpartisan Entity. Mm-hmm. So that's one question. The second question is also what we call malapportionment. How many 
voters does one elected representative actually represent? Um, you know, through the electoral college, through the um, you know Senate, is everyone's vote treated equally? Whether you're from a state that is, you know, with a small population or a large population, is everyone's vote, does it carry equal weight? And then two, are mm-hmm. elections run by independent authorities? Sometimes in the U.S., people running for elections themselves may have an office in the state that actually runs the election. Right. <laughs> so, so are there, you know, credible independent election uh, management bodies or election commissions that run um, elections? And then, of course, the electoral college itself that's, you know, um, discussed quite a bit. Uh, is that something that, um, you know, that meets international standards? Um, and then the last thing, I mean, there are many uh, issues, <laughs> but, but the, the last thing that I will, you know, uh, really highlight is just, you know, propaganda, disinformation and hate speech and how social media has amplified it. A lot of my work and time is spent on this uh, internationally training, you know, journalists and civil society and election commissions mm-hmm. on how to address um, disinformation and hate speech. So this is this depolarization of society. I think we can have different ideas and I think we, these ideas should contest to find the best idea, you know, uh, the best policies to win. But this depolarization is another, um, you know, real critical challenge. And these are societal challenges, some of these. They are not necessarily electoral challenges, but they play a major role in elections. And behind all the laws uh, and, and the rules governing elections are, are people. And I think what you, what you laid out very, very clearly is, is how thinking about elections dovetails really with moral and ethical questions. Um, and so, Rose, I wanted to ask you, from your perspective, from your perspective, how have folks um, in your community, um, and maybe you yourself, you know, as as a leader, have been have been talking about the idea of this moral obligation to vote? Uh, have you framed it in that way, and it, that it's more than just a civic duty, but also a spiritual responsibility? Yeah, it's a it's a great question because I think this is uh, this is a question that I have shifted on in my own journey hmm. over time. Okay. And uh, the the way that Sojourners certainly talks about uh, voting, and uh, and we've been really emphasizing in this election where it feels like there's such desperate stakes mm. um, that that it is a moral duty of people of faith to serve the common good of the of the country or the city or the place in which they find themselves, and uh, and that a primary mechanism or the, the, um, on some ways, the easiest way to do that <laughs> is to cast a vote. That's, that's the bottom of the, of the ladder, mm-hmm. uh, is to educate yourself, um, to discern community values in the context of, of others, uh, and then to do what needs to be done to, to cast your vote. Um, and, and, Part of the way that we frame that is it, it references what what Basu mentioned in a more secular setting, but that you know every person is made in the image and likeness of God, and that individual image, that the human dignity of each individual, uh, must be respected and defended. And in a secular manner, the voting system in a democracy should do that. Mm. Um, and, and so uh, that's a lot of how we have been thinking about this right now. And, um, but I have to say that, you know, within sort of radical Christianity in the United States, there are some pretty different perspectives on that. This is partly what I have, I have uh, wrestled with my own self is, is there's, a, there's a, um, a minority of Christians who would say that, that we should withdraw from voting. That we should not vote because mm. uh, because voting is a is a mechanism of the empire <laughs> in which we live, mm-hmm. um, and it is better to withdraw from that um, and 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 serve a different kind of uh, kingdom or ki- mm-hmm. different kind of vision for the world. Mm-hmm. And so there there are very good and thoughtful people particularly out of the Anabaptist tradition, the Mennonites, the Amish, um, 
Quakers, some Quakers, uh, and um, and even among the Catholics, some in the Catholic worker tradition would say that uh, that we should we should not vote um, hmm. as a as a statement against uh, the state. And, and what has been your your movement on that? Yeah, issue? I, I think in my in my twenties. Twenties and thirties, I think I was more in that camp that there weren't any people on the ballot or initiatives on the ballot that I felt like were truly advancing the things that I thought were most important, and mm -hmm. it didn't. It it just it seemed like it was contributing to a bad, to a dirty, rotten system. Um, mm -hmm. I think over time I've come to understand that in the world most of the systems are dirty and rotten <laughs> and mm -hmm. they all have the potential for good. <laughs> um, yeah. And that the, the, as I get in greater solidarity with my neighbors and uh, with my community, then I want to act in a way that, um, that reflects, uh, re reflects a desire to build the common good and to, to uh, work together. And um, so as you know, particularly when we get to this current election, when I, feel like our our two-party system in this country has really been hijacked um, and we no longer have a two-party system, um, that it, it's really important for people to vote uh, to try to regain some sense of a democratic process so that we have something that we can work on together. Vasu, what is your understanding of the Baha'i perspective on voting? And how do you as a Baha'i navigate um, participation in, in politics, uh, particularly in this current moment? So at the core of uh, Baha'i belief is this idea that we should be anxiously concerned with the needs of the age that we live in, right? What does our world need? And then to offer all of our talents and, uh, you know, energy to promoting that um, those needs. And for today in the Baha'i uh, tradition, it's sort of very clear that um, the oneness of humanity that we are one human family. And um, as other traditions have reflected and uh, Rose beautifully alluded to, alluded to, we are children of God. We are all children of God. So this notion that we are one human family mm. um, is central, right? So from that perspective, anything that, you know, deeply divides us or polarizes uh, societies uh, in, uh, inherently uh, have the ability to harm us. So Baha'is actually do not engage in partisan politics of any sort. Um, but, you know, uh, as citizens, it's our duty to participate and contribute to the betterment of our societies. And we do that through engaging in voting, certainly, but, uh, but Baha'is do not... Um, you know, get them, get involved in partisan politics. Uh, partly, you know, um, as also someone who works in elections internationally and works on, you know, issues uh, uh, surrounding political parties, I see um, a certain perspective there that's important because parties in many countries have been hijacked uh, by deeply polarizing, you know, positions and it's tearing societies apart. So, um there is that, that is that, and that's something that people who are involved in elections work, people who are involved in democracy building, civic engagement are trying to reform. Um, but from a Baha'i perspective, I think having a clear commitment to justice um, and a clear commitment to better our societies, starting from our families, our neighborhoods, and our nations, but also realizing that what these, what this age calls for is a growing circle of what we call us, right? This expanding this circle of us and reducing the sense of other is very important to me. Um, again, the Baha'i faith does not have clergy, um, you know, and uh, Baha'i faith the community has its own elected institutions that govern the affairs of the community. But truly, I think, you know, uh, part, you know, knowing about what are the needs of my society, reading the reality of my neighborhood, my community, my nation, and then actively participating in that uh, 
you know, and, and one aspect of that being a good citizen is uh, voting. So very much mm -hmm. it's part of our uh, civic duty. And as Rose said, that it's something that we engage with, um, you know, thoughtfulness and a commitment. Yeah. I'm curious how, as you've had conversations with friends and neighbors who uh, are not part of the Baha'i community, are not familiar with the Baha'i tradition, and are, are you know, talking to you, asking about your opinions about, on the one side, talking about the, the rise of, of fascism and certain types of hate groups and, and white supremacy and, and so forth, and perhaps on the other side, folks who are deeply concerned about the erosion of the moral fiber of, of our society. And well, I, I'm, I'm thinking about a recent, a recent guest who's a very conservative Catholic who talked about the idea of pluralism actually being a negative. How is it that you personally choose to talk about these concerns that people have um, in light of that idea of oneness? It's a struggle, right? Some days uh, better than others. You know, in, in deeply polarized environments, it's a challenge to try to stay above the partisanship of these conversations. And the way I approach this is to talk about principles mm. and to talk about justice um, and, you know, and try to be open to varying different views. Um, and I think this is, you know, it's only through the clash of different opinions uh, that truth emerges, right? So um, being very open to different, you know, uh, viewpoints and not, you know, demonizing people who have completely divergent views from um, myself, um, mm -hmm. you know, but but really keeping at the, at the level of principles actually allows to have a uh, a conversation and find agreement. And the second thing is about when you engage in a direct conversation with someone who completely disagrees with your viewpoint, to try to choose that as, you know, to see that conversation as a, as a possibility of expanding both my own worldview and yeah. the worldview of the person who I'm speaking with, because we each have something to contribute um, to the other. Not everyone who has a particular viewpoint, you know, um, and especially in these sort of uh, disinformation, rife, um, identity politics times, um, they are not always completely closed. And mm -hmm. some of the uh, grievances they may uh, offer or perspectives they may offer could be very legitimate and enlightening. So, um, you know, it's tough. And again, um, you know, definitely zero tolerance for injustice. Uh, but I, I do feel like be, entering into a conversation um, at the, in, at the le level of principles and, um, you know, just respecting the dignity of individuals in, I'm in conversation with and to try to not demonize them helps me personally. So it's a very personal you know, uh, answer. I'm curious if, if you, just in again, in light of this particular moment, um, if you use the term anti-racist in, in the way that you describe your worldview or activities within the Baha'i context, um, or have you have you moved at all and, and shifted your perspective on 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 that term in particular, um, given given the um, Baha'i approaches to issues of racial justice in our country? Um, you know, the Baha'i community for you know well over uh, 120 years um, or so that we can trace back the uh, early history of the activity of the Baha'i community in the U.S. towards racial equality and race amity and racial justice has been deeply committed to this. And as a community, our understanding of what this looks like has also continued to evolve as we put into practice the teachings of our faith that are quite unequivocal around the oneness of humanity and the need for um, people of different racial uh, origins in this country to work towards, you know, uh, race unity, particularly, you know, the role of, um, you know, white people in, and um, what they have to do to, um, you know, sort of both internal work as well as societal work to promote race unity, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think the uh, current uh, conversation around anti-racism, which actually is not new, it's, it's newly popularized, it dates back, sure. uh, right? So um, I, I, I haven't had a major change. Um, I agree with that in principle, uh, right? So I have no uh, no concerns with it. I also don't see it as, you know, a new concept. 
mm-hmm. I see that as um, you know an, a, a deep concept that is gaining popularity, and it's great, um, and it's you know it's good that a lot of people are thinking about it. I also remember that in the in the sacred scriptures of the Baha'i writings, uh, the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, you know, likens the people of African descent to the pupil of the eye. Um, and, you know, I do a lot of counter speech training and uh, countering hate speech training. And I often call this the most great counter speech where here's a founder of one of the major spiritual traditions of the world calling people of African descent the pupil of the eye from which light shines, right? He really elevates um, the station of people of African descent, uh, both as a way to empower the, uh, and highlight the nobility of people of African descent to themselves so that there can be no external pressure that uh, takes that nobility away, but more importantly, to everyone else um, to understand and appreciate that nobility. So, so yes, um, anti-racism is a good thing. <laughs> um, Rose, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that you agree on that point. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wanted to to maybe circle back around to what you had mentioned earlier um, about uh, a a previous, previous interviewee who, you know, presented a conservative Catholic um, perspective on pluralism and saying that, that pluralism might not be the best thing. And the, the question that I have, and and often that, uh, arguments made with a sense that the conservative position is the one that protects the moral foundation or the moral formation of the society. And I just would completely... That was the context in which it was being... Yeah, yeah. And, the, and I just would completely challenge that um, because the the moral formation and foundation of the society in which we are living right now is definitely under attack. Um, but the way it is under attack is in devaluing the human dignity of individuals. And so when you have a, a society in which uh, people's human dignity is attacked and devalued because of their sexual orientation, because of the color of their skin, because of their immigration status, um, when we've when we are in a country that's... Uh, uh, you know, the largest has the largest number of nuclear weapons in the world, which implies we're willing to use them uh, mm. on mass populations of people. When we are a country that uh, that regularly, again, engages in capital punishment, um, it, it, all of these things are attacks on the spiritual and moral foundations of the country, and that that's a whole aspect of uh, of moral. Um, moral formation that I feel as if we need to talk about much, much more because that there is a, the U S is, you know, we are a very violent country and, um, and we do promote both in culture and in some of our political decisions, a a culture of violence um, and a culture of death. And if we are going to get to the place where our human dignity promotes a sense of reverence for life, um, as a as a general principle, <laughs> uh, the, then finding ways to really advance that kind of understanding, a broader, more inclusive, um, and uh, a, a, a kind of formation of of morality and spirituality that fits with a democratic um, democratic society. And there's small D, I assume. Yeah, small D, a small D democratic society, which is the which is the humanistic and and secular component to a society that promotes the common good and and promotes um, and promotes individual human dignity. And Mm. so those things, I think, are just some some ways of framing the way people of faith can. can be good custodians um, or help contribute to the moral and spiritual foundation of a uh, secular or intercultural or interreligious society, a plural society.
I had a question for you. You know, we're recording this on Tuesday. Yesterday was the confirmation of uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. And it was interesting. I I hadn't actually been aware of this um, before before the discussions around her her confirmation and the controversy and everything there. Um, But we not only now have a a politically conservative majority in the Supreme Court, but actually a Catholic majority on the Supreme Court as well with six justices. So I'm curious how you view this as a fellow Catholic. Um, I'm not in favor of uh, Justice Coney Barrett's um, appointment. Um, In general, I would say that it's it's uh, helpful to have people with a Catholic education on the Supreme Court because I do feel like there is, especially if they've come out of Jesuit schools, there's a pretty rigorous intellectual approach there hmm. that I generally uh, find trustworthy. Hmm. And uh, and yet, um, I think in I think that, that in in her case, she has clearly shown herself to not be impartial on very critical issues that are of concern for our country. And I just think that kind of impartiality is critical in a, in a judge and a Supreme court judge. And um, I don't see that. I don't see her manifesting that it's a, it's a little misleading to, to say that they are all Catholic with the, with the implication that they subscribe to a, a pretty narrow, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, either version of their faith or uh, perspective that they bring yeah. to their, to their court rulings. Um, and the, the word Catholic means universal <laughs> and, right. uh, and the, the Roman Catholic church is a very wide umbrella. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a big tent. Um, and so you will have uh, Catholics who, who are across the social and political spectrum who are um, who are Catholics in good standing? They are not. They are not on the margins. <laughs> they are part of the mainstream of, of the Catholic Church and uh, and are living out the social teaching of the t- Church in a very faithful way. But that mm-hmm. may look very very different uh, in terms of uh, you know how they how they interact with particular social issues part of this show and presented what we've striven to do is is to um present uh, a, a broad diversity of people from all sorts of different um perspectives just for the very point that you brought up you know so we've had obviously um catholics with very divergent viewpoints socially and and theological interpretations and everything so that's something i've um certainly been intentional about and I've been I've been happy about with the show that we've been able to learn from so many different people who uh you know claim the same tradition and yet at the same time have very different perspectives on it yeah and um, I think there's you know there's just a as Vasu was was um intimating there's there's such a lively and generative way of having conversations with those who are inclined toward conservatism in the sense of they, they want to hold on to what is best in the tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and they feel that, that they feel the deep importance of that uh, alongside those who, uh, who are inclined toward a, toward a living progressive faith, one that is always looking forward to where we can go as a society, how we can grow as human people, how to meet the needs of the current moment. Um, and that's a really lively and generative conversation. And, uh, but it, but it, takes, um, it takes some comfortability with, uh, with our own positions. Um, and, and it just takes a huge amount of uh, generosity toward the other uh, to, to allow that... Um, uh, to allow those those ideas and those different lenses to come together in a way that uh, that, as you said at the beginning, that allows us some humility in how we might um, not only live together in the moment, but bring forward into the future that sort of the best that we have to offer. So in um, in this 
next part of our our show we we ask our guests to to ask each other questions i get out of the way and and um open the floor for for you all to follow up um with questions that you might have about each other's tradition or practice um oftentimes we have guests that uh are meeting for the first time so it's a fun opportunity for them to get to know a little bit more uh about each other in this case we have uh, two folks that have known each other for quite a long time, <laughs> so I hope you still have questions uh, for each other. But I'll I'll ask there. Rose, do you have any questions for Vasu? Yeah, I, I have I have two questions. Um, uh, one of them is what, what I, but one of the most vibrant things that I know about you, Vasu, is the way that you create. Um, environments for people to come together and be their spiritual selves. <laughs> um, and uh, so whether that's in your attention to cooking, in your attention to making a beautiful meal and a home life and an invitation for people to come together and sort of reflect on um, beautiful scripture quotes, uh, beautiful poetry. Where does that come from? Is that something that is part of a Baha'i tradition? Is that something that's just connected to you? Thank you, Rose, uh, for asking that question. And, you know, you've been very much part of these beautiful spaces uh, that I've had, the, you know, the bounty of uh, creating and inviting people into. And um, yeah, so this is, you know, having devotional gatherings uh, bringing together people of different faiths, particularly people you know who uh, happen to live in a neighborhood, right? And to increase sort of the spaces and opportunities in the neighborhood for friends and neighbors to come together, and um, you know just collectively reflect that we are part of one human family, that we are part of you know uh, children of one uh, higher power. Uh, was is very much part of how Baha'i communities, you know, address this idea of, um, you know, of worship and service. Um, these conversations often had prayers and uh, devotions from different, uh, you know, spiritual traditions. And sometimes people would come in who do not follow any spiritual tradition. It was certainly open to them as well. Um, but we also always thought of and connected this um spirituality to a sense of how are we serving our community and um and so bringing those two parts together has very much been part of um you know something that i learned in the bahai community and something that bahais do in their neighborhoods and um around the world so yes so that's that, that's very much part of how my day-to-day -day practice of my faith looks like is to create opportunities for people to come together and uh, share a spiritual, a collective spiritual heritage. Vasu, do you have a, a, any questions for Rose? Um, I, I have I have a particular question for Rose around the Catholic Nonviolence Peace uh, Initiative. So, Rose, if you can tell us a little bit about that, that would be wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I, this really started um, at the point where. Uh, pope francis was was named as the new pope for the catholic church and when he took the name of francis to uh, francis of assisi saint francis of assisi to be his patron saint if you want to say that uh, he's he said that there were three things that pope that that saint francis um focused on and that he would focus on in his in his papacy and they were uh, poverty and uh, peace and um, ecology or care for creation. And so we have seen um, Pope Francis working especially on the questions of uh, ecology with his Laudato Si um, encyclical and on the question, the issue of poverty, not so much the issue, but actually just bringing poor people into the center of the church and having them speak their perspective. So that's been uh, really refreshing and astonishing and uh, prophetic in some ways. Um, so what we at the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative said was how can we help Pope Francis develop the peace part of his, uh, of his platform? And one thing that, you know, when it comes to issues of war and peace in the Catholic Church, 
we find that most Catholics um, d default to this ancient idea about a just, just war tradition, uh, that there are ways to limit wars uh, through certain principles, um, but, but they, they really, in the 20th and 21st century, that language is often just used to justify war rather than to prevent war. So recognizing that that was sort of the, the current teaching of the church and there was a whole lot of room for exploring some, some other directions, we, we basically started what I would tell, say is a global roundtable with Catholics at the grassroots uh, to talk about the role of nonviolence in their lives. And uh, so we've had a, a four-year process now of using the amazing uh, skills of Zoom uh, we've brought <laughs> grassroots, uh, not Catholic nonviolence practitioners from, uh, from Africa, from the Philippines, from Korea, from different parts of Europe, the United States, Australia, all into conversation together to talk about nonviolence and Catholicism. And part of that process has been to really develop what I call, and no one else calls it this but me, but a people's pastoral on nonviolence or a people's encyclical on nonviolence, mm. where the Catholic people of the world have talked together about what nonviolence means to them, what the questions are around it, how they've implemented it, uh, what they'd like the church to teach them about it. And, um, and that's the sort of the fruits of those global conversations are what we've been presenting to uh, to different Vatican officials, um, and we've formally submitted to Pope Francis, and then also just recently this week uh, released in a in a book form um, uh, called "Advancing Nonviolence and Just Peace for the Church and the World." So we're really excited to be able to have that uh, that book. Um, out and available, um, and and mostly because it's it's the key to the next step of the process. Hmm. Great, that sounds very exciting. Uh, Rose, did you did you say that you had another question for Vasu? Yeah. Um, so Vasu, the you know part of my Catholic tradition, that the stream of Catholic tradition that I'm involved in. Um, has really seen public witness, uh, public protest, demonstration, public liturgy as a key part of um, of our social contribution to to social justice. And I wonder how Baha'is see this whole issue of protest or or public demonstrating. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, I think, um, you know, Baha'is, as I've, you know, talked about, you know, um, have really stayed away from partisan political activity. So to the extent that these protests are primarily, are primarily about partisan politics, Baha'is will really have to question, um, you know, how they are engaging in that and uh, are they engaging in partisan political activity you know, um, and, and that's a, a very legitimate question to ask as part of their uh, faith. But when when it comes to social justice uh, events or social justice, um, you know, sort of demonstrations, I would call them a demonstrations rather than a protest. But when it's sort of, you know, um, I, I think I think Baha'is are free to participate in those and do often participate you know, uh, in those. Um, I think wherever Baha'is reside, you know, we, we really do make a commitment to uphold justice, addressing uh, inequities that are directed towards us and directed towards our fellow citizens, but through all lawful means available, you know, uh, to us, right? So so the, the, the right to go out and voice your opinion in a group and to call for social justice, um, I feel is sort of very much you know, within that construct, um, but the the partisan, you know, uh, protest is something that Baha'is generally do not engage in, um, based on this 
you know, uh, this this principle. But a lot of, um, you know, uh, sort of rallies and discussions around rights of people is, um, you know, very much, um, you know, something that, you know, we are, we are we are part of. I remember this initiative recently um, that I think the churches and places of worship up and down 16th Street had uh, convened around, um, you know, uh, solidarity and, um, you know, uh, around the brutal murder of uh, Mr. George Floyd and uh, racial, the moment of racial reckoning. So for four Fridays of a, a, a month, um, all the churches up and down 16th Street, you know, rang their bells um, and, um, you know, had people with signs standing outside them saying Black Lives Matter, social justice matters. And it's really a beautiful coming together of faith traditions. It was totally nonpartisan, certainly call, calling our elected leaders to account, uh, but also to calling ourselves as a society to account. And uh, I, you know, uh, I don't live very far from the Baha'i Center. So a few of us uh, friends, we went outside, of course, socially distant and wearing masks, but we were holding these signs and all these cars that were going past us would honk and, you know, raise their hands out. And, you know, it was just a beautiful moment of solidarity. So, um, and that was very much, uh, many Baha'is came on diff four different Fridays and so many Baha'is came to it. Um, and we all felt that we were very much standing as witness to one of the fundamental principles of our faith. So, um, so in that sense, is that a protest? Uh, certainly against injustice, but it was not partisan. It was really calling ourselves to account, but also our societies and elected leaders to account. Before we wrap up, this week is the commemoration of, of All Souls. It's a time of, of obviously remembering those who have passed away. Um, in our in our family, actually, it's it, it's interesting. That I I just was thinking about this that it it is a period where we have a, a number of commemorations of, of life and and death. Um, um, my my maternal grandmother, as as well as my father's parents, have death anniversaries and and birthdays during this time and also uh my my daughter uh, was born um on on november 1st so we have we have this very heightened period i'm 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 realizing of of remembrance um of uh of life and those those who have passed on and given us life um so i'm curious i'm curious as particularly as this is a an acute time for mourning of loved ones who have passed away during during this season, this prolonged season. Who you're lifting up at this time? Who you're remembering um, this All Souls Day? Uh, Rose and and I guess Vasu as well. If you have if if you're thinking of anyone. Oh, that's that's such a, a wonderful invitation and um, yeah. In in the Catholic tradition, the the uh, practices in some places of, of building a, a Dia de los Muertos altar where mm. you um, you bring the, the flowers of November, usually marigolds, and uh, build a little home altar and put the photographs of people who have died, particularly during the past year, um, and just spend time with them, spend time thinking about them, spend time recalling the stories of their life and the impact that they had on you and and in catholic theology really renewing your relationship with them in, in a in a new way um and particularly this this year uh during this season of covid i've had a uh i've on the very first day that we got quarantined i put up a list on my wall uh with the with the line blessed are you lord our god who are the keeper of the book of life and I've just listed the names of people who I have heard about or who was somehow part of my extended circle who have died this year. And, you know, there are about 25 names um, on that list. Um, and so I'm keeping all of those people in prayer uh, this this November. And and then especially um, on my mind right now is a, is a wonderful 
uh, Christian activist Murphy Davis, who uh, just died this past week. And uh, mm. she she was really called uh, the saint of death row um, for all mm. of the work that she has done for many years uh, with uh, prisoners on death row and accompanying them through the them and their families uh, through the through the execution. Um, so Murphy Murphy Davis had uh, had cancer for a long time, and finally, just this past week made her transition over and we had some uh, really wonderful time praying for her to help help in that transition. Uh, and, and I'm thinking of just the uh, tremendous impact she had on people's lives, people who are so hidden from us, uh, who are so forgotten. Um, and Murphy was somebody who was with them. So I, I hold her up. Beautiful. Vasu, um, anyone that you're thinking of during this time or, or have been recently? You know, um, definitely thinking about the over 200,000 people, lives that we've lost as a nation and um, countless more around the world to uh, COVID. I think that's definitely on my mind. And also, um, you know, people who we continue to lose and have lost for really unjust racial violence uh, in this country and around the world where people are, um, you know, very unjustly losing their lives. While mourning that loss, also uh, keeping in mind that the injustice of this is for, you know, their families and us, um, but people who also, you know, um, pass away. Our idea of the Baha'i teachings about afterlife, you know, uh, is that, it's a dynamic afterlife. Uh, and on the other side, they are also um, able to pray for us and support us and to draw on them. So there is a, um, while the injustice, you know, absolutely angers me and the um, early lives that are snatched away from us saddens me. Um, I also keep in mind, you know, that, um, that these are people there, that there are reality is uh, a spiritual reality and we are souls with an earthly body, uh, not bodies with a soul. So keeping both of those perspectives in uh, mind, this is not a particularly, you know, um, uh, there isn't a tradition uh, of an all souls day in the Baha'i community. Um, so, so, but as people around us, our friends from different faith traditions think about this, uh, this will certainly be on my mind. Thank you for naming those people that have been inspiring examples of of living out the best of their traditions. Um, and and certainly as we enter into this year, I'm looking forward to to standing with with both of you in in whichever ways as uh, we try to try to build whatever this next chapter is, a more unified country and and really a more unified world. So. Thank you both for, for all that you're doing to, to bring that about. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Vasu. That was wonderful. Thank you both. Nice speaking with you. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. You can find links to more info about Vasu and Rose's work in the show notes for this episode. So be sure to read up about all their great work. And if you want a bit more intersection between what was discussed in this episode, I'm going to also include in the show notes an article about the Baha'i approach to elections that appeared in Sojourner's Magazine during the last election cycle, written by none other than yours truly with my buddy Oak Ritchie. For real though, I want to give so much appreciation to Vasu and Rose for being my guests today. Vasu has been an ardent supporter of Interfaith-ish and Tacoma Radio since the beginning of this show. When I invited him to be my guest this week, he immediately replied, If you're looking for a second guest, I know the perfect person. And he was absolutely right. I still can't believe Rose agreed to join us the morning after doing a cross-country driving trip. I'm telling you, that's real friendship. And speaking of friendship, as always, I want to give a shout-out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hofmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. I also want to dedicate this episode to the memory of my late grandmother, Marsha Larson, who was a wonderful supporter of interfaith engagement and dialogue. She passed away this week, three years ago, and we miss her very much. Love you, Grandma.
And of course, I want to thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of Interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. You can follow us on social media at Interfaith-ish. Leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953. And keep writing us with the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org. Oh, and remember to vote. Today, right now. Bring a friend. Wear a mask. And make sure you vote in all the local elections, too. That stuff's important, people.